Hello, everyone. My name is Arun Balakrishnan. I'm the founder and CEO of Hitsedents, a global insurance services firm. If you want to learn about opportunities in the insurance space, then you will love this episode. It is a masterclass on all things insurance. Arun Balakrishnan, the co-founder and CEO of Exceedance, talks to Akshay Tath about the entire insurance value chain and the major stakeholders in insurance space in this episode. Exceedance is building a unified suite of services and products for insurance companies, helping them in their digital transformation journey and creating cutting-edge products for the next-gen customer. Arun founded his startup straight after graduating from IIM Ahmedabad, which eventually did not scale. He was then recruited as a very young India CEO for Berkshire Hathaway Insurance, which paved the way for him to eventually start up Exceedance, which has been bootstrapped and profitable right from the start. Stay tuned and subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming platform to learn how to build bootstrapped and profitable global businesses. Myself and my batchmate, his name is Kaushik Mukherjee. Yeah, he's the co-founder of Sugar Cosmetics, you might know. We both were batchmates. We decided naively at that time, let's start a business straight out of campus. So we turned down our jobs and everything. In hindsight, it's not like we might have had a job, <laughs> but <laughs> when we graduated, but yeah, we decided to stay up, start a business straight out of campus. And when we graduated, we set up this e-commerce portal called lootstreet.com. We wanted to be like eBay had introduced auctions. We tried out the haggling business model, thinking that's what would work in India. It didn't go anywhere and nobody was really, I know VCs and all much had money at that point of time and everything, right? I mean, we did that for some time, but eventually ended up pivoting to a different business, more around insurance. So it was online insurance products because the only companies who were willing to pay for leads and advertising online those days was the financial products companies or back insurance companies. We got into the space of aggregating insurance products and other financial products and selling those leads to insurance companies, others and all. Something like Policy Bazaar? Yes. So Policy Bazaar started in 2007. It also started just about the same time. Okay. Uh, for what Yashish has done, we probably didn't execute as well as he did, right? But Evan, you could not catch up with them in terms of fundraise? Or? I think the biggest advantage at that point of time, I think he's gotten very smartly, was when they started the business, they had about $5 million from Knock We took business. And we, our, we didn't have much money and we managed to raise some angel rounds from readup.com and everything. But then we had a few things not going in our favor, not only the lack of capital and everything, but reflect back on those days. I don't think myself or even Kaushik had that kind of experience and all to drive what this business needed as well. And the market in India at that time was a bit early for it, right? For those reasons, and eventually we got, we had to take up jobs, it broke, right? And we could raise more money. Nobody was really putting much money those days, right? So then, definitely through one of the VCs I knew, they connected me to a portfolio companies of theirs called Netambit, um, mm. which Sean Girish. Girish, yes. So Girish and Kaval, I joined there in 2010 to start their e-commerce portal for insurance. We have called from the, uh, the HR headed Pajaj Alliance that Alliance is doing a joint venture with the Berkshire where to start an insurance setup in India and they're looking for a CEO and we all talk to you. So my first thought was this clearly a mistake. They don't know how much experience I have or anything like that. But it was a chance to get interviewed by Mr. Ajit Jain. I was like, you know what? This is, I'll take a chance with this one. Is Ajit Jain a big deal? Just help me understand. I'm not familiar. Yeah, so Ajit Jain is the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway Group. Okay. Like Warren Buffett's right-hand man. So he manages the entire insurance business for Berkshire He's probably one of the most well-known executives in the insurance business. And uh, to the chance that time, and showed up for the meeting and everything in Trident and Gurgaon, uh, realized they were serious about it. And so one of the 
one of the best insurance companies in the Berkshire Hathaway group is a company called Geico. And they have a direct-to-consumer business model for selling insurance in the U.S. And the point of Berkshire Hathaway was to set up company or entity in India which could replicate the direct consumer business model and the challenge is of course whether and foreign investment laws right FDI that time was only 26% so the path possible for Bachatwe was to set up as a agency working with the Bajaj Alliance group so it was joint venture wherein 80% was Bachatwe 20% was Alliance and that's how that thing was being set right now when I had interaction, I still remember that very well. One of the things I was most impressed with was the value system of Berkshire Hathaway Group, right? And how Ajit thought about the business and everything. And it was a no-brainer. So I fortunately fell into a very small group of people in India at that point of time who could claim to have experience in insurance, internet, and had some good academic background, so on and so forth. I was probably younger than what they were looking for, but my entrepreneurial experience made up for that. I was thinking about when you say this journey about exceedance, I think there's at least a good five years before that would lead up to it as well. Then many wow. Amazing. Well, I want to understand this arrangement between Berkshire Hathaway and Bajaj Alliance better. Berkshire Hathaway would run bajajalliance.com. Or Berkshire Hathaway would run an independent site like Policy Bazaar. They would set up an insurance broking business in India and sell primarily Alliance. At that point of time, even broking was under FDI. So you could only be as a direct cockpitty. We had a separate brand called BerkshireInsurance.com. So the brand was Berkshire Hathaway's policy and the products were, but the actual underlying policy was of Bajaj Alliance. But the brand, the platform was ours. And the goal of that platform was, let's build the Berkshire Hath brand, explore the business model, see how it goes. And eventually when the FDI laws change, then we can become a carrier. And that was the path we set ourselves on at Berkshire So the operating agency mechanism was only one which the regulator permitted for 100% foreign ownership at that point of time. And that's the path we took. Can you break down the ecosystem, corporate agency, broker, carrier? Who are the stakeholders here and what is the difference between each of them? Absolutely. So I think, so then I'll walk you through it in the Indian context and globally. There is, firstly, there is the capital side. So there's insurance companies. Then insurance companies buy insurance for themselves. That's called reinsurance companies. Swissery, Munich, Re, and all of Berkshire Fall insurance. Things. So that's the capital part. And then there are some more structures around insurance linked securities, card bonds, but they became very niche. But the principle that insurers are reached. Then comes the distribution side of it. So, how the products get to customers. So, there, either you can go direct to your consumers or you work with brokers. Now, the brokers are representative of the clients, they are not representative of the insurance company. So what broker will do is you want to buy insurance, they will represent you and get quotes from respective insurance companies and you can, they can, you get paid by the insurance company, not from the client. A corporate agent or an agent should be a dedicated employee of the company. And if it's a corporate agency, it works specifically. That time when we were doing it was only one insurance company. So an agent represent only one insurance company, which I think it expanded to three now. In I won't know the exact one in India at the moment, but it exists. Operate agent represents the insurance. And if you take in the global context, there is the brokers further get broken down into wholesale brokers, retail brokers. And there's an ecosystem called, it's called managing general agents who basically act entirely like an insurance company, except taking the balance sheet. So as with many things in insurance, and you'll see along our discussion, we tend to complicate many. This difference between a corporate agent versus a broker seems like semantics, right? In both cases, they earn from the, the seller of the policy only. Yes, but the, the a corporate agent does not have the ability to offer the product of a company which they, a broker by a regulation can go to any insurance and get that for you. 
right? So, so that's how it's defined in the laws. Okay, got it. Okay, okay. So Berkshire became a corporate agent for Bajaj Alliance. Okay. Yeah. So we, we for about till about thirteen is when we ran the per brand into BerkshireInsurance.com. We got to a good policyholder base. Principal products we were selling were auto travel, and we just started health, but mostly direct lines, working with the customers directly. Selling directly using our contact center team and our online platform. That's what we did. And more than anything, I think the thing which I really revered was this time I was, I had a chance to become an entrepreneur again in some sense because Victor Hathaway has a phenomenal culture around that about the control is with the management to decide and think in a very long way. And I joke and I don't joke about it. I, I, when I talk to people and describe it, I feel the stint for me as the Berkshire CEO was probably more entrepreneurial than my own venture funded businesses. I mean, the investors and this versus, you know, the culture was so different, right? So in 2013 is when, you know, the choice before, the, the laws around FDIs were not really changing. And it was a loss-making entity. The business model is such that it requires a lot of scale and everything to get to it. So Choices before Berkshire was really to keep losing money and whenever the laws change, we get in or we just get in when the laws change. So that was the second path was what Berkshire we decided to take. And in 2013, we decided to close down the direct setup in India. Berkshire still does a lot of reinsurance. That time I was also helping in some areas. That continued with the direct side of the business. We decided to close down the team and everything in 2013. So there is no uh, MDI requirement for reinsurers. Reinsurers can be global companies. So there is a requirement if you want to keep the capital in India. Things have changed a lot in the last 10 years. Back then, you could have a branch in India. And would, and it's not possible to find all the capacity which insurance companies needed in India anyways. So they were allowed to go outside and everything. So that did exist. Over, now it's changed. Now they're allowed to have one branch. I think Lloyd's is there. I won't be as well versed with it today, but it's a lot more flexible than what it was. And reinsurer would take a portfolio, say one lakh car insurance policies, and reinsure it. What would be the terms of this? Just to, I'm just trying to understand this sector. Oh, absolutely. So think about it like this, right? As an insurance company's biggest risk is concentration. Right? So one big hurricane happens or one big cyclone happens or Mumbai floods happen and a big amount of risk comes. It can be a capital risk. So they buy reinsurance for extreme situations like this. So you do, unfortunately don't get to pick and choose because it's a reverse selection there. And insurance company could go to a reinsurance company and say, okay, you know what? Here is 30% of my portfolio. Right? All 30% of premium is for you. All the losses from this, 30% of that you pay us. And by the way, I helped you source some business. So you give me some commission. So the insurance company gets a commission from the insurance company. Yeah. In the same proportion, the losses and premium are divided. There are ways to buy reinsurance also. You say that up to the 100% of losses, I will pay. But beyond that, the reinsurer will pay. So for that, reinsurers charge a premium to the insurance company. So models work like that. So that's a capital heavy business and this is more operational and writing I think. Distribution. Okay. Okay. Got it. So then like once Berkshire decided to yeah, so like, take a break from uh, India. Yeah. Yeah. So at that point I was fortunate to be presented a very interesting opportunity by the Berkshire team. It was like they didn't want to have any legal entity in India and it was lent that way. So they said, we like the team. If you set up a company which could provide some underwriting services, actuarials, some back office, we would be keen to work with you. So here, when I gave it some thought with my wife, it was a chance to become an entrepreneur again, working with a company I loved working with. I had a business model which doesn't require me to raise any money and everything like that. It has good unit economics and it starts slow, could grow, but it seemed like an opportunity which was definitely worth trying and very interesting. I told Yes to them. I spoke to the senior management team of Berkshire India, two people, Manish and Amit, 
join me as co-founders in Exceedance. About 10. And who, how did you know Manish and Amit? Were they working with you at Workshop? Workshop India, yeah. So Amit was running the, the IT side. He was the CIO, Manish was the CEO. So they came along with these roles. And about 10 analysts and associates also joined us in this business. With a team of about 13 people and two Berkshire Hathaway group companies as our anchor clients, we started the business. This was June of 2013. We had a, the Berkshire didn't do any equity investment, but having some, they gave us a good two, three year contract for a small portion of people and everything. And that's the origin story of Ichira. So now when... So when we started the business and the first obvious question was, are we too late to this whole outsourcing party? <laughs> it was 20 years old by then. The second thing I realized and maybe a bit too late is that the grand total I experience I had in services was zero. If I added the experience of Manish and Amit, it was still zero. Right. <laughs> the only thing we knew was insurance and the thing where it felt, you know, when it's explored it, this whole thing of you teach us your job and we we'll do it cheaper, didn't have the best ring to it. And we felt this will eventually erode, right? I think that you will have to demonstrate yourself as a partner and expertise would be expected. And India had the talent pool for it as well, right? We decided rather than becoming an IT company or a BPO company or BPO takes. Uh, analytics, KPO, we'll do everything, but only one industry. So how which used to be, we think of us as an insurance company without capital, without distribution. Anything else which requires to run an insurance company, an NGA or reinsurer or anything, we'd actually underwriting claims. We will build out the whole thing. Of course, on day one, we didn't have everything. We had to gradually build it out, but that's the vision with which we start. And our whole thing was, we will put industry expertise at the front and center. When you speak to us as partners, our IT team would understand your business, right? Our back office team would understand your business. We'll come to you as how we think is the best. And the fact that it is cheaper is incidental to the process and not the value proposition. And the biggest credibility we had was the one of the largest names in the insurance business was our client. Helped us open doors and gradually built out from there. So that was the vision. We started first two years. So one, one quick question here before the first two years story. What are the things which an insurance company needs to do to run? What is actuarial? If you can just, for an outsider, if you can just describe how an insurance company runs, what are those pieces which you propose to offer? Yeah, let's think about it. three phases, right? First is, you know, what to sell, right? When it's real product which needs to be designed okay suppose you want to insure your home so a home insurance is a product auto insurance is a product business insurance so designing that product has two phases to it one is what should be the terms and conditions of the policy how should we select the particular risk to take for that and what should be the premium to be charged Premium is a mathematical exercise, depends on a lot of variables. You take a big pool of people, you observe, coming up. All the actuaries and the work associated with creating a product goes in, right? Then the elements of the, what are the terms, condition, that's really expertise driven from an insurer's side. Lawyers get involved, every product. And finally, okay, this is the product, but if somebody comes in with a very expensive car, like a Ferrari, you don't want to underwrite that because of your product definition, that could be a bad test. So that risk selection, how it happens is called underwrite. So once the is designed, evaluating risks to see whether they fit your criteria or not is underwrite. Once that happens, then the basics of the work start about like actually issuing a policy, collecting the money, doing finance and accounting around with it, bookkeeping associated. That's all a back office to middle office kind of things. And eventually, the main thing insurance companies in the business for is paying claims. So if you come back with a loss, seeing whether you, the loss is worth paying, is it covered, not covered, educating it, paying it, all that is a function of the claims adjusters in it. So 
what do you mean by educating it? Like educating the loss? What is... No, adjudicate. Oh, adjudicate. Okay. Yes. You come in, what is the exact loss amount to be paid to you? Frankly, there's a case of mass fraud, like you burn down your warehouse and you're claiming that is also okay. This is fraud, could not be. So there's an evaluation before you pay out. And what are to be paid out? That whole process is called the claims adjudication process. And that's the main business of insurance. So that's in which is set. So these are all functions which go in other than keeping the lights on with capital distribution and all. Yeah. Uh, the actuarial science is the science of pricing the, to look at the demographic data and so on and risk profile and deciding how to price. Yeah, so that is correct. The actuaries are involved with deciding the premium, reviewing the portfolio, seeing it is. They also have a very important job, which is called reserving. Now, the beauty about the insurance business is we are probably the only in, in industry in where we get to make up our own expense. What we are what I'm saying is, if you look at, the, so revenue is premium, right? The distribution expense, operating expense, then those are defined. The chunk is actually the claims being paid, which is called the loss expense, which is up to about 70% of the business. You don't know what your eventual losses on that could be for maybe eight or 10 years sometimes. If you write certain liability lines and all, it could take a long time to know. So the actual job is to look and estimate at the base of the claims now, aging, inflation, what the financial performance of this could look like as well. So that's called preserving. So actuaries are involved on both sides, so not only product, but also. Okay, got it. So coming back to the first two years, now what was it that you were offering in the first two years to Berkshire's group? So we, with this, the first two clients we started off with, we were providing reinsurance underwriting support. We were doing some IT projects and uh, we had two actual students working with another Berkshire Group company and some back office functions. So these were the four areas with which we started. Back office would be like, say, customer KYC processing that or claims processing that, stuff like that. No, we're more on the policy side. So like showing a policy, issuing some indoors, things like that. We didn't get into voice-based support. While the voice support from India for overseas is a good business. Even now, we started a contact center only after getting to the US and we have a team here. We don't do it outside. But at that time, we didn't do that. And now, one of the single main consistent reasons for success amongst any entrepreneurial ventures or business is luck. <laughs> <laughs> I think we got our fair share of luck within three weeks of the business starting. We got to know that Mr. Ajit Jain and Warren Buffett have decided to start a new insurance company ground up. And there are four senior executives from AIG who will be joining to leave that and build that business ground up for Prachat. So we were introduced there. When they were starting, when we were starting, and they decided to make us part of their growth and opportunity from day one. And that synergy helped us accelerate a lot in the first two years. And not first two years, even now they're a big client. But that initial growth of all these capabilities came in because they were in a growth mode building out all of these. And they needed support and we became a partner and they became a trusted client with which we built that off. That a big part of the first two years' growth was largely purchase-driven, focused with that. Right. I remember one year into the business, it was grown to, we hit 1 million ARR in eighth month of the business. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, yeah it was just about eight months. And we grew and everything. But then after about a year, I met some of my friends and VCs and all who I knew. It just casual chats. And, oh, great, amazing growth, but in Tindrink, are you a one-trick pony, right? Or like, <laughs> or a sweetheart client, maybe a sweetheart deal, can you really do something? In all honesty, you would ask yourself that as well, right? 2014, about, just about a year later is when we got our first non-Berkshire Hathaway client, which was Aon is a very big buyer of services and 
it was quite encouraging to win that portion of the business because not only did was it a validation that we are doing something right, but that we pulled business away from our key competitor and got that slowly. Maybe that Ian is into employee benefits space, right? Like they work with corporates for employee health insurance. That's one of their verticals, right? They're one of the largest brokers in the world. We worked with them mostly on that commercial and business insurance side of things. Uh, they're a broking company, so you're focused there. And yeah, we do, see, there, there's nuances, right? And if you look at the BPO industry, the IT industry, they thrive on large numbers, right? You want the same auto policies being sold to a million people. So you can define a Six Sigma process, cookie cutter, one guy does, pass it on. Now that segment has a lot of competition, right? Anyone and everyone was already there. The segment of business insurance and commercial insurance is a bit different. So if a Microsoft goes to buy insurance for their whole business, it's written like a snowflake policy. It's a customized policy. They are not buying off the shelf, right? Same way large businesses, mid-sized businesses, their requirements are very one-on-one. Well, you can't just break everything into a cookie-cutter process. So expertise needed to be demonstrated. And we figured that could be a sweet spot wherein we can create a differentiator for ourselves by not only relying on expertise, but also bringing in technology. Combining these two from the beginning, and one of the things we did very right in the beginning was we set up a good technology team from day one, right? And that carving out a niche for us in commercial insurance globally was something which became a total good differentiator for us. It allowed industry or us to develop and demonstrate that we understand the business well, and that's how it's grown. The technology was for internal consumption to make you more efficient, or was it for clients? Like you were powering their workflows, like they, like a platform for them to work on. So it was both. Initially, there were we did get some custom application projects around insurance, but a big part of the work of the team was to make platforms which made our own BPO and other services more efficient. And gradually we got into having some more platforms and products. But from the beginning, we've had internal and external focus. Gradually, external started getting more and more, but it has always been a part. So, yeah, is it a services business or is it a product business? What you do on technology side for clients? So, we, our core business of exceedance, there we have the about 30 to 40, 35 to 40% of business IT related, which is largely services. 2017, we got into products by investing in a London-based startup called Chainback. So we started with a minority position in them in 2017. Today, we, they are a wholly owned subsidiary and we are our SaaS division. So our technology SaaS products are under a separate subsidiary called Chainlab. Both are under the same parent. The reasons we did that is the DNA of a services company is very different from a DNA of a product. Right? So that's why I keep them as two separate entities, but they fall within the same parent. Okay. And this acquisition was funded purely through internal accruals. Yeah, we have never raised any money. So everything, wow. internal accruals, so thank you so much. Our, we have reinvested into growth some moderate amount of debt here and there and reinvest into the business, you know. Yeah. So you hit 1 million within eight months, like 1 million ARR. What has been the journey from there to now? Like the annual revenue or? So we are just shy of 100 million ARR. I think. Wow. One, maybe February is when we get there. Amazing. Okay. What is the split of this by geography, by service lines or business divisions and five to seventy percent would be US. Okay. Twenty percent would be UK and Europe and where the rest would be Australian. Okay. So India is purely a servicing base. There's no business from India. Not at the moment, but we have had a client and we are exploring fit India is still very small. Right. I'll give you an example like in US have some seven, eight thousand insurance companies read about NGAs, brokers, and so on. Yes, so I think from a client base, the numbers and everything is still smaller for us. It's a key insurance market. We have looked at India as an 
as an investment ground. So we've looked at insurtech startups and all where we could be an investor or other avenues. But as a client base, it is still a small opportunity for us. Okay. Okay. What's MGA? MGA is an ecosystem, is an entity called Managing General Agents. In most of the developed markets are managing. So suppose you work with an insurance company and you have built an expertise in selling insurance to restaurants. You understand the restaurants like nobody. When you look at a restaurant and book whether to take the risk or not, premium, everything. So you will go to an insurance company and say, hey, I will set up a specific product for just restaurants. I will sell it. I will underwrite it. I'll manage the operations. I'll play the games, everything. The only thing I don't want is balance sheet loss. So 25% you give me, I'll do every expense in that. 75% you keep. And all the losses from this, you have to pay. So no balance sheet risk. But so it's like an insurance company without balance sheet risk. And that's how it's structured. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Okay. I think some companies in India are trying this on the employee health insurance space. Yes. So the thing is, India didn't have MGAs. I know it still does has MGAs as an entity classified. Some regulation and changes might be required for that, but it's not an unusual way to, because there's been a wave of venture capital money which went into insurtechs and all that. So one of the challenges for investors used to be getting into an insurance business was it's a big lock of capital, right? You Now, an MGA as a vehicle allowed you to separate capital and balance sheet risk from an operating and distribution business. So that's how a lot of money went there as well. Okay, okay, interesting. Coming back to it, yeah, please continue. Yeah. No, I mean, first two years, I was killing myself on the plane all the time. I And from day one, I was managing clients mostly. So then eventually decided to relocate to Boston. So since 2015, I've been in Boston. And this is where we built out a team and everything. That would been sales and everything. At 17, I told you, we made an investment in chain that which was a minority stake and we got into products. In 2020, we set up another subsidiary for actually incubating NGAs in London. And that's another subsidiary of ours. In Israel, we invested in another minority check in a good insure tech company called Five Sigma. But our organic business of exceedance is really the cash generator and growth. We have today about 3,100 teammates. About 150 would be in the US, about 150 would be in Poland. London would have about 30. Australia will have a handful and rest all are in India. And yeah, I already gave you the distribution of clients, but we work with large reinsurers, brokers, MGAs, took to nuts there. And yeah, that's a snapshot of the business. Happy to get into any details. You focus on commercial insurance at the core excellence business. Yes, we did start getting a lot of personal lines carriers also. We originally started with a very strong commercial focus. Gradually, technology will start looking at a personal lines as well. In fact, in Australia, most of the clients we work with are on the personal line side. But when we started, and even today, a big part of our operations is commercial. Okay. What are commercial policies like fire and what, like marine insurance and... Oh, yeah, sure. The beautiful, so fundamentally, there are two kinds of insurance. Actually, three. If you look at India and UK and all, they put health insurance into general insurance. But I view it a bit differently. So there's life insurance and there is non-life. Within non-life, there is health. And if you exclude health, then there's property and casualty. Right? So there could be fire-related policy. In commercial specifically, there could be fire policies, construction policies. Marine, terrorism, art and investments, event cancellation. The list is literally very long. You could, Kohli might decide, no, not without Kohli, he's an individual, but a business might coming up with a very specific kind of product for which they may have to make a huge capital investment. So they buy liability lines. Now, a lot of, very interestingly, you will see the, these M&As happen, right? When private equity companies buy or one company buys other, there's something called transaction liability insurance there. 
So there are the world and universe of that is huge. Litigation, uh, like against, insurance against litigation. Insurance against litigation, that is the almost underlying basic policy which everybody needs. It's called generalized. So everybody will want to have that. Within that, it becomes specific also, right? For example, professional liability. Right. If there is a chartered accountant who's giving you services, forgets to file taxes properly and you get a penalty, that you can re- recover from your insurance. Right. So that's a mistake from a part. So the universe of it is literally huge mm. and big. And these are snowflake policies typically. I, I like mm. that. Actually, means like a custom designed policy, a snowflake policy. Yeah. Yes and no. So there are. If you, in the commercial insurance also, then third segmentation. So a Reliance Jamnagar refinery is a custom box, highly customized. There'll be 20 insurers and 30 reinsurers on the program. It's a very risk. But a bakery in on our street, the insurers they buy, that's a very standard policy, small commercial. So, yeah, so it's the small commercial, mid-market and large. And as the business size keeps increasing, the more customized it keeps. Yeah. Your, like, what team would be doing this research and like the creating those custom policies, I'm guessing another team would be creating the IT workflows for insurance companies so that things move fast. Like what are the team, the split of headcount, like which, how many people doing what? Yeah, I wouldn't know the exact headcount, but the broad split is, like I said, about 30 to 40, 35 to 40 percent of our business might be coming from IT services or even associated. About 30 percent would be coming in from underwriting services, actuarial services, catastrophe modeling, a bit high end and those kind of data analytics. The rest would be coming in from back and middle office functions like policy insurance, support, so on and so forth. And that is within our exceedance services subject. The other subsidiaries, they're still smaller, but they're a bit different. Okay. And what products does the chain that make? So they have two systems. One is a policy administration system called Beyond Policy Administration. And then there is a reinsurance management system. So for reinsurers who want it, there's another system as well. And that's the two products they have been in. They've also created another niche product right now. It's a very small thing that's called multinational policy placement. So again, going back to my Microsoft example, Microsoft has so many offices across the globe. If they want to have everything covered under one policy, they need to work with so many insurers and different entities and everything. And the, their system actually helps facilitate. Okay. I want to understand how you scale the organization in terms of let's say the culture, the processes to reach to 100 million in services business is tremendous. What is the way in which you built up the organizational capability to hit that kind of a milestone? So one thing goes back to, I see any business like ours, when you're starting, right, you need some base, right? So in us, we had a good anchor client and let's go down to B2B enterprise related business. Any great product or services, it doesn't matter, right? Fundamentally, initially, the customer is buying into you. There's a very common saying, nobody gets fired for picking IBM, right? And that's the reality of large enterprise businesses. You, like, you don't, you're taking, you don't want to be the guy who points on a very niche product or a niche team or anything. You need to have some credibility of sorts to help open some of those doors. And once that opens, you need to make most of it, right? So as a basic thing there is we had some things working for us, like you mentioned, a clientele. And because of having been the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway's India business, nobody turned down my meeting request blatant. If I requested people or if I told somebody, I would get an audience. Would they get business? Probably not, but People gave an audience, right? So I think one of the first things was realizing that was our strength, right? If at that point of time, I tried to do that with banking or capital markets, it wouldn't happen. So we doubled down constantly on what are our strengths. The second thing was reflecting on my prior experiences and everything. I realized that 
it is very important for me to not get stuck in with things I'm not good at because it will not help the company. Right? So I was extremely fortunate to have co-founders, Manish and Amit, who are like solid professionals and they actually know these things probably 10 times better than I And I focused on the areas where I could add and they focused on the areas they could add. Right? And that in the beginning, we set that up very clear. The other thing was, like I mentioned, being on the plane, right? And eventually getting to the States. You have to be close to your customer. I have personally invested in companies in India as well as when it, they say that they'll sell from India. Like, doesn't work like that. You might be a genius who has a product which is so intuitive that people don't, but by and large, you need to show up. All right. I think working with clients or being there, showing them those were the things which really need to tick but the biggest element of why growth and everything is if you look at my profile on linkedin also i don't write founder right? my visiting card never says founder my rationale for that is always that i think there's a disproportionate amount of focus on people who were there on day one of the time they certainly played a big role but that doesn't build a company and we needed solid, experienced professionals to join our team. And when they join our team, they shouldn't feel that there is a separate group of people and then they're walking up. We created an environment where an industry professional, and if you go to our website and you'll see leaders, most of them have more experience than me, right? And they're far better at things and all of that. And we created an environment and culture which could embrace people with experience coming into the firm feeling the same degree of ownership around it and then help build that. We focused on building a team. If you ask me the number, only good thing and I think I've done in the last nine and a half, ten years is help build this team. It's an amazing bunch of people who are so self-driven. I don't have to do much, right? They, they bring so much value themselves, right? So that's the aspects we focused on. But I'll again go back to the thing I said. Let's not forget the element of luck. You need a fair share of it. And, but you got to make most of it, right? What comes your way. Okay, amazing. Were you influenced by the Berkshire culture? Berkshire Hathaway culture? Very yeah. much. Okay. Very much. I have seen in, in my days there as a CEO, I never wasted time making projections well into five, six years, having quarterly reviews or anything. My whole discussions with Ajit and Kara was the boss were really revolved around this is the long-term goal. This is the boundaries. Don't go outside the boundaries. Think logical. Don't do stupid things and focus on the long-term goal. Then that in I, I say this which is which I picked up from there as well is Short term is 20 years and long term is forever. So that's the philosophy with which we are building the company, right? And when you start thinking about organizations like the Tatas in India or the Times Group and all, who have been around for 175, 200 years, then our five-year plans and quarterly revenues seem meaningless. If you're building an organization which outlives all of us, it will have to have certain values which are beyond the people. And Berkshire has a phenomenal culture and I think my, that's my only experience also. Are you also taking the Berkshire Hathaway philosophy of building a portfolio, the way in which like you kept chain that as a separate entity? I'm assuming you would have kept on the founders to run the business and given them that entrepreneurial freedom to run it the way they want to and so on. Yes and no. The, our subsidiaries have their own management team, own CEO. I'm on their boards, I'm at their disposal when they need me, if not. But we give them the independence and running and the capital security we provide. But we're not really set out to build a portfolio or a conglomerate like Pachath, where the entities we are looking at is really focused on a values part, part of the value chain of insurance. If a subsidiary requires, if an entity for culture, or for other reasons requires it to be separate, we'll keep it as a separate entity. Otherwise, we'll have it in house. For example, TPAs, claims TPAs are there. We didn't, we didn't create it as a separate entity or a subsidiary. It's a part of our services. So it's really about how it, the synergies between the team exist. But if one has to be a portfolio, we'll keep it as a portfolio. 
So what is TPA? I think we didn't cover this in our stakeholder discussion. Yeah. So TPA is on the claim side, third party adjusters. So if an insurance company can have their own adjusters who will adjudicate each of these claims, or there are third party entities called DPS, third party administrators, who will do the job of adjudicating these claims. So that's there. So like a lot of your health insurance claims, which you would do, they're usually managed by TPAs in India. Okay. Okay. And how does the TPA earn some part of the premium? No, no, claim. So usually it's negotiated with insurance company. Like for each auto insurance claim, they might get $100 or $50 or $300 for home or $400. I'm giving vague numbers here and it depends on geography and other things. But either it could be per claim or it could be an hourly basis on complex claims, depending on the hours put in and all. But that's not linked to premium. That's linked to claims. Okay. That's a per transaction, basically. Okay. Okay. So you have a DPA business also? Yes. We started that in two. So we did earlier support claims team of insurers, but we didn't have a separate DPA, which is a licensed entity and everything. So we eventually had a good team we found and we decided to start our own DPA operations. It's been about one and a half years now and require licenses from states, but it's mostly US right now, also Australia, but that's when it is focused. Okay. Okay. So what what do you see accidents, say, five years down the line? What would it look like? When I think about, so if you look at the insurance industry, like I told you, right, there's one pillar is capital, which has clear dominant people, like a Berkshire Hathaway or a Munich Re, Swiss Re, you'll find. Distribution has clear dominant names like Aon, Willis, March, these guys are there. The third pillar, which keeps everything, is a very fragmented space, right? Like IT has somebody else, actual might have somebody else, claims might have somebody else, data might be somebody else. So our long-term vision is to create an entity which could dominate that. So all our efforts are towards creating a set of services, products, and data assets, which could help insurance entities and the insurance ecosystem function and operate better. And that's the areas we continuously invest. If I think about the next five years, I think our depth in certain areas will go much more and we add in newer areas, which we have still not got into. That's really what we're trying to grow into and all. And that's why five years is probably a smaller figure from that perspective. But what we're trying to do is a bit like own that space, as we say, is really our vision. Now, do things help along the way? Certain things with, with like we are present in key insurance markets, US, London, Europe is still nascent for us. Lot of untapped opportunity. Australia can further improve. We've not even got into Japan and developing insurance markets proposition is again an open area for us. So I joke about this to people like we are running into nine and a half years since we started the companies. But when I look at all the things yet to be done, it feels like we're on step one. Right? Yeah. So, there's a lot of things to keep us busy. Okay. What do you mean by data assets? Like you said, you want to create data assets. Big data assets or which can help leverage data assets. There are multiple ways around it. But fundamentally, in the insurance business is about data, right? You need data to create the product. You need data to validate whether you're writing profitable businesses, you need data to better select. For example, let's assume we, in the traditional way of most companies are still selling auto insurance in a very traditional way, right? You ask for the car make and model, how many miles you're driving, your driving behavior, blah, blah, everything. And then the insurance industry over the past years, based on experiences, has classified. A 21-year-old young boy is about risk on a tougher risk than yeah, an elderly couple. But suddenly, if I gave you a data point that this 21-year-old on his feed says, I hate driving cars, I, will, I never drive cars, I drive taking it out once in a week. That bad risk is a risk you want in your right? So the world we live in today is changed so much 
relative to the time, all these underwriting questions, methods, everything were designed. So the use of data into real-time pricing, real-time risk was going to be the way the insurance industry evolves. Right. And I think that is an area of opportunity we see. And while I don't think you have an exact path on how to do it, is an area of focus for us because I'll tell you, give you a great example. There's so many people who get approached by companies who say, we ask the customer for 20 questions online to sell before they can get a quote. Can we automate the responses, right? And if he enters his name, we can find it from the web and fill the question and answer so that he doesn't have to answer. The first question we ask him is, okay, but why these 20 questions? Why are we trying to force fit a 40-year-old thing into today's work? Let's design something else. So the op- the future of insurance companies are going to be fundamentally companies which operationally will excel in technology and the use of data and technology. Right? And helping existing companies move there as well as helping create new companies as a partner in the ecosystem will have to get certain capabilities and that's why that is an area of investment. Okay, interesting. So I've interviewed a lot of lending startup founders and essentially the playbook which a new age tech-driven lending company has is to use a lot of alternate data sources to underwrite the person they are giving a loan to, not just rely on the income tax filing, for example, which used to yep. be there and so on. A similar approach is what you want to bring into insurance where you have a lot of alternate data sources to decide what you want to price the policy at for a specific customer. Yeah, I think the only difference is we are not becoming an insurance company. Creating the tools which enable that. Yes. So the tools to help the next generation of insurance companies either leverage these sources of data. Like, I'll give you a great example, right? About chain that our company, they've built out this product from beyond policy administration, right? The way they have designed the system to incorporate IoT device information real time and those packets of data being stored, interacted and everything in such a efficient and fast way, that is something. Because you you want the next generation of systems will not just be consuming what data comes as a feed one time. They should be able to do this real time. And we are investing in creating technologies like these, which hopefully give the leg up to these insurance entities. Yeah. So this real-time feed would not affect a policy already sold, but it would affect at the time of renewal for future policies being sold for that cohort. It is work because the regulator thing is which is consistent across the globe is you have filed your rates and your policies with the insurance regulator of your jurisdiction, which is a country, eight whatever. So it doesn't allow me to change that. It's a policyholder protection, right? So... Today's world doesn't allow that. But again, this is when I think regulators will need to evolve as well is because think about it like this. You, when you're underwriting somebody, like you, you ask a question that you have a fire alarm, everything. Now, get a discount, blah, blah, everything. If that alarm is not working through and through, what's up? There's another very common product these days or product which is one of the fastest growing is cyber insurance. So organizations like ourselves will buy cyber insurance. You're answering questions. What is your system? They'll do some evaluation of IT infrastructure and that. But conversely, if I came to you and that, okay, we'll sell you insurance, cyber insurance for $1,000 a month. At the end of two months and the end of a month, I come and say that based on this device, we know that 20% of your employees have not put in the latest Windows update. If you don't correct it, your premium will go up, right? It will drive good behavior, but it will also price the risk in the manner which is consistent. So the limitation of the past of 30, 40 decade, years ago was this kind of world in information processing and real-time data was not accessible or available. That's not going to be the world we live in. We're going to have that. How we use that to get closer to defining the cohorts in which you price 
is the true basis for insurance pricing is to price each risk on its own value. Practically, it is not possible. That's why you create these 21-year-old boys are bad risk and all that kind of thing. But with use of technology, it can come down, down to smaller cohorts and the utopia would be like each risk looked at in a very individual way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Amazing. What are the metrics that matter to you? What metrics do you personally track? So the number one, so there are so from a business perspective, there's one thing, and there's operational, and then there's strategic, right? So, and strategic is, I think, any business is very client-centered, right? So, you any B2B business, you need to have a pulse on your class, right? And people those NPS scores and everything, and sometimes I think you lose the forest for the trees there by relying on these scores, I think. The actual interactions with your key clients across the organization, how frequently you're meeting. That's one thing we like to always have a pulse on, right? Because very key. Yeah. When it comes to financial metrics, the one area wherein we are super paranoid or super careful is we are a cash flow business. So like I, I don't like to look at PL state. Or business or anything, our financial, this is always about generating cash. I don't care if it is sitting on receivables for this thing. PNL statements can give you a very different picture. And there's a reason to that. We never had any external source of funding. So we had to be very, we had to be very particular about collecting money on time and that having a good cash generation view of your business. So that is something very critical. From an operational perspective, that's where I rely more on my team. I think the biggest validation of your inherent operational capabilities is how your individual accounts have grown, right? So if you sign up an account today, what it is three years from now is a reflection of how the client's business has grown, how they have grown confidence in us and that has grown and how macro and cropic conditions are the capabilities. So the view of how one client, which we added, how long they have been with us and how that has grown is a very key driver for that for us. So these are some of the things we spend time on. But sometimes there'll be other specific niche things, but largely mm. these are the areas. Okay. How do you figure out pricing for a services business? For founders who are running services businesses, what is your advice about pricing? Because... This is with the product pricing, it is still somewhat not as challenging. You can put one price, you can iterate, you can give discounts, see what's working and so on. But how do you do it for a services business? So the thing is, you can't be too much off mark. That is the because let me correct that. You can be off market in pricing if you can demonstrate a key reason for why you are premium or anything. So I think one of the benefits of not being from the services business was we looked at everything from first principle. Right? When you look at these large listed companies and everything, a lot of BPO companies, the pricing was FTE based, right? Full-time equivalent. Well, the areas we saw in that was there's an inherent conflict with your client. If you make the process more efficient with technology, you need lesser your revenue. So this we observed some conflicts like that. So the kind of business where we are in, right? If you talk about service and expertise, is A, you can clearly pull out things which are very important, right? So you need a certain degree of input, effort, everything. And there, if you can demonstrate that by virtue of higher knowledge or your own platforms and all, you can do it better than others, then you should command a premium for as long as the total cost of ownership for the client is missed. Now there is, I would say, being creative with business model. Like, we started getting into transaction-based price, right? We started clients, then you don't have to worry about fee-based pricing. Let's do transaction-based. That allows us to really invest in automation because 
even if my revenue is less, my profit margin might be higher if you can automate the whole thing and also that was there. With one of the clients who was in an early stage startup, we actually did a deal wherein we told them, you don't have to pay us any fixed cost. Pay us as a percentage of your premium as your business goes to keep going. We made a lot of money. Right. As an organization, we have always tried to endeavor creating pricing models which are unique to the situation, unique to the opportunity, and we are willing, being willing to put our money at risk for non-performance failure and in, in return for a disproportionate upside. Long is short, we tried a bunch of things. Some did work, some worked pretty well. We look at opportunity and its merit. And one of the things I encourage everybody to do is also is there is no cookie cutter process here, right? Pricing, we have a dedicated team which works with our really just on price, right? Because every deal is unique, every customer is unique, every need is unique. And you need something which could be of benefit for both. Yeah, okay, amazing. Who are your competitors in this space? Is it like, say, these IT companies like Infosys, Wipro and all? Or? Well, firstly, there are two large companies. I, I think we'll be a bit naive or willing to call us that we're competing with them. But well, we do run up against companies, including them, and we have one business also away from some of them you named here. But we view competition in segments. If you look at, so I've been torn this by private equities well in our projects or talk to us that if you look at the insurance services world, it's dedicated insurance only, nothing else, comprehensive services, we'll probably be one of the top three in the world, right? So this group is a very big one. Then there are two BPOs called Research Pro and Patra, but they're very BPO specific, more focused on retailers. So we run up against them in areas when we are going up against agents and brokers. If you are going up in insurers, It'll be the BPO providers, the EXLs, the GenPacks, the BPO divisions of Infosys, TCS, and all. In IT, we up against. I we we nobody. We are not yet in a space where the same deal size as some of these large companies look at. We were getting, but some of the companies like CoForge and MindTree and these areas that specific to their insurance, sorry, their insurance groups see there as well. Uh-oh. Lastly, certain functions are very unique, like actuarial TP is there. It's a very different kind of competition, right? So we try to spin it into our sales pitch is all these companies, it's their insurance is a part of their BFSI division. Yeah. Wow. Nothing. It's only I. It's not a part of it. And what one of these large companies, executives, he mentioned that in that vertical focused and technology enabled the things we pick is a drive which many of these companies are trying to do and customers want and they're like it was a brilliant strategy you took on i'm like i don't know about brilliant that's all i knew but the definition of competitions is more within segments right so you can different areas where there are competition and we actually some of them we see them as partners and enablers also you will see a public needs about EXL and us, we jointly put a proposal before a client and everything. Now, the work which we decided for ourselves was areas they didn't have expertise in. There were areas work which they wanted to do. We also could do that, but we decided there's no point like that. There are certain expertise areas we could bring in that's some scale-related thing which they can provide. So we are well. We actually see some of these large companies as enablers too. They will elaborate and bring what we have to the table. But in the traditional sense, in some areas, we run up as competition. The world mm-hmm. is big enough. What's your reading on the Indian insurtech space? What are the opportunities to build companies in? And are there specific areas which you are interested in? So I think the biggest opportunity in insurtech in India still lies on the carrier side. So being an insurance company in itself. Like what Digit has done? Yeah, so I'm a big fan of Kamish. He was one of the reasons I got the gig with Berkshire Hathaway as well. So he was the CEO and was that time. So I've known him 
while. I think he has a pulse on how to build a business, an insurance business in, in India. The story they've done about tapping into embedded insurance and everything is a very key success story. And I think as an opportunity, there is still more room for a developing, growing economy like India on that. On the other side, see, the thing is, until you have this ecosystem built out, the rest of the value chain for it to develop and create will take. So there are a lot of insurtechs which created in India for the world. Unfortunately, I see a lot of companies, they built something in India, they see we take it to US and it'll work. It doesn't work like that. These insurance principles, while being the same, the regulatory framework, the regulatory setup, the ecosystem of how it is sold, bought is very different, right? So these products which we are designing for Indian insurers is not really as quoted. If you want to build something, I think it's best if you build for a client here rather than doing it. So that's how we've seen opportunities on both sides. But uh, I think if I were to look at, it'll be either on the carrier side or commercial side of insurance in the India. And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to the show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in the show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at the podium dot in. That's ad at t h e p o d i u m dot in.